1: Coming up on this week's show, the office suite that runs on your Game Boy. An amazing new Doom clone arrives on the Amiga. And we get the ultimate history of video
2: games with author Steve Kent.
1: Retro Owl Podcast is brought to you each week with our good mates at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're a fan of the Game Boy, you have to check out Game Boy The Box Art Collection, a celebration of some of the best ever cover artwork for Nintendo's Monochrome Marvel, which kick-started the handheld games industry. At over 372 pages, it is a must-read for all Game Boy fans. You can check that out on all that other range of retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 292, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Jay Fox. And a very, very warm welcome to this week's show. You know, last week we were saying we're into September now, you know, the nights are getting a bit longer autumn's finally arriving we're right in the middle of a heat wave here in the UK we're actually recording this yeah, I think this. it's I like, like the just... last last heat wave of the year but yeah
0: you, you well and truly jinxed it Dan like honestly we, we <laughs> actually I'm not I'm not afraid to say the boys have been waiting for me for like the last hour and a half because I've been trying to get my daughter back to sleep because it's so hot she, she's been crying but it's and all that, down fault.
2: I was you just jinxed it. talking about putting the heating on last time yep. <laughs>
0: yeah
1: <laughs> so we are a bit sweaty hopefully no one's going to pass out as we uh, get through the news stories over the next half an hour or so. But I mean, it, it is amazing doing this podcast. The fact that we're up to, you know, episode number 292, getting ready for the big 300 that, you know, don't want to tease it or uh, odgings anything again, but I think we do have a rather special guest on the way I for episode 300. A guest. Yeah,
0: which yeah, is uh, actually got somebody.
1: We just, just need to make sure it happens now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's the thing. This podcast, when we started it nearly six years ago now, it was always an aim to kind of document this industry that we've just, you know, throughout our lifetimes, how much gaming has grown. I mean I was looking the other day that obviously with the pandemic, for some industries, you know, entertainment in particular, in terms of, you know, streaming services and uh games, it's actually been quite kind to it. You know, the gaming industry grew massively last year. It's now worth 90 billion dollars. You, you know, that is a huge market. You know, it's crazy and it's gone
2: it's gone properly mainstream. Like even this week we got a press release from Selfridges. And they were saying that they were opening a gaming shop and in their section of their gaming shop, they're going to have an Aston Martin simulator and a 24 karat gold arcade machine. So, you know, if Selfridges are kind of investing in luxury gaming and stuff, it really shows, you know, how it's kind of popping off. But also, you know, in lockdown, people have really taken it up.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, when we chat to people that have been involved in the industry for a long time, it really does show you how far it's come. I mean, in a relatively short time. We've spoke before that if we were doing a movies podcast... It wouldn't be possible to do this because, you know, you couldn't go back to the people that, you know, started the movie industry like over 100 years ago because, you know, none of them are here anymore. But the fact that we, you know, we've had Nolan Bushnell on the show and these pioneers that were there right at day one of the industry. And actually, our guest today is an author who's um, actually written two very, very comprehensive books detailing the rise of this industry because, I mean, really, our guest this week, Stephen Kent, he had a front row seat to a lot of this when it was actually happening. Oh, man, this interview is absolutely amazing. He's talking about stuff
3: like
2: the PlayStation 2 launch, but all the launchers of all the earlier systems as well, like the JAG and the kind of 16 and 8-bit launchers. He was uh, receiving thousands of games a day as well and sitting there. And back in the days, basically doing the dream job of every teenager, which was receiving games and reviewing them in 1993, uh, which is really amazing to hear his
1: stories. Yeah, well, he started working on the Seattle Times, which obviously, you know, a very big newspaper back in the early 90s, as you mentioned. Worked for a load of big magazines in America, Next Gen Magazine, Electronic Games, to name a few. Um, and obviously, doing that job, he kind of, you know, he schmoozed with um, all the big company execs. You know, he interviewed Miyamoto and, you know, he had access to guys at like Howard Lincoln and Tom Kalinski, And, you know, he was there at the time when you, you remember then, you know, that kind of pre-Internet era, especially, how important the printed media was in the newspaper columns and uh, and magazines and it was a really interesting time for him to cover gaming that kind of transition from the 16-bit machines through 32-bit the cd-rom era full motion video coming in he was actually there at the launch of the playstation 2 in japan he had like a front row seat checking it out he's one of the only people that didn't actually pre-order it that actually got a playstation 2 in japan on launch day so he's got some incredible stories um but also as you mentioned ravi He's um, written two very comprehensive books. The first one that came out in 2001 called The Ultimate History of Video Games that actually is now followed up, Volume 2, came out last month. So this is like, you know, books that are like 20 years in the making. That is how comprehensive these are. So I guess Stephen Kent, he's coming up. You're going to really enjoy this week's interview. Some real behind-the-scenes stories. And he's going to be on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now let's get straight into the stories this week because it has been a very busy week in terms of retro gaming and technology news. This is something that um, <laughs> I never expected to see, particularly something getting funded on Kickstarter to this level. This is a Game Boy productivity suite. It's like an office suite for the Game Boy that's been fully funded on Kickstarter. This is really, this is kind of like really interesting for me because we
0: it was only a couple of months ago that wasn't there like a prototype of this officially made by nintendo like that emerged. Uh, there that we was like
2: a keyboard yeah on. like and, a, keyboard was a prototype on. and that kind of worked with some software that they had but, yeah uh yeah this is this is something a, a lot more comprehensive i think
0: yeah yeah a little bit more comprehensive than that so i mean i've got visions of like dan you know working in the office you know in the hustle bustle pulling out his game boy you know for his notepad or his calculator or his clock for his diary <laughs> on his Game Boy now. <laughs> Who um, needs my yeah. iPhone? Who needs an iPhone when you've got a Game Boy? But yeah, this is um went up two days ago at the point of recording, so it'll be about five days ago when the show comes out. For yeah, Kickstarter for essentially free <laughs> free individual productivity suite cartridges for the Game Boy, um, which comes separately. So you've got the calculator ca- cartridge, the notepad cartridge, and the clock cartridge, which essentially do what they say on the tin um which have all been made in uh, now get correct me if i'm wrong ravi they've been made in assembly for the game boy yeah so assembly is like the
2: basic kind of yeah well basics another language God, that's a bad way to explain it assembly <laughs> is like the kind of low level language yeah you know so they run really fast even though it's a calculator and you don't probably yeah. need it to run that fast but um sam mcdonald actually submitted this on our discord and i knew mm. nothing about this and just seeing it looks mad. So you're right. They've got all these different kind of ones. And uh, they've also got like um, some stretch goals. So you can have a yeah. to-do list as well, which is an In one. And they're all yeah. on individual carts yeah. as well, which just looks absolutely mad. I think they're producing the carts themselves. So um, they're limited on the kind of. Yeah. So they, they can have.
0: They're producing it themselves. Their goal was $2,000, which they hit within a day um and at this point they're around about six seven thousand dollars already i think they've got a little way to go for the stretch but they've still got 32 days to go and they've got 150 backers already um but i've just got visions of like people genuinely trying to use it like you put your calculator cartridge in you do you do your sums and then you take the cartridge out and you put your notepad cartridge in you know you type something out on the game boy which would take I imagine a very long time to actually type out using the D-pad and the B&A button. Um. Well,
2: this, this is one of the lines. Gee, wouldn't it be sweet if you didn't have to worry about search engine people scraping your data, spying for your webcam? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is for you. And uh, Dan, do you think you'd use this? And uh, <laughs> it's kind of a bit pointless, isn't it? But uh, it, it, it's a fun and novelty kind of thing.
1: You know what? I am dorky enough to actually use something like this. A couple of months ago, um, I was just trying to find something in my cupboard and I came across my Apple Newton. That did a video on a a couple of months, probably about two years ago, I did a video on it now. And actually I thought, oh, you know, I'm going to try using that for a bit. So I put some batteries in it, put it in my bag, took it to work and actually used it as my notepad for like a day until it went back in the cupboard again. But I think, yeah, there is something, it's weird because whenever I do my taxes every year, I always (laughs) generally do it. I, I do it on my Amiga normally just because it makes the process A bit more interesting than just doing it on Word or something. And also it lets you focus being offline. You know, the fact that I haven't got like tweets coming up and stuff like that. So I generally do all my taxes on like my Amiga 4000 and the text editor. I think
0: this year you should do your taxes on your Game Boy.
1: I've got a feeling that if I want to make my deadline for the uh, taxes, um, the tax return, it might not be the best idea to do it on the Game Boy. And you could print it out on that tiny paper and <laughs> submit it to the I do have one of those, actually. <laughs> I do
0: have one of those. That would be amazing. What I love, though, is how 90s the advertisement is for it as well. It's like, you know, uh, the notepad. Here are the features of it. Storage for up to 10 notes. Multiple yeah. eye-pleasing fonts. Switch easily between keyboard layouts. Optional password protection. Digital edition, the clock, easy read to display, 12 to 24 hour mode, <laughs> definitively answer the question of what time is it?
2: <laughs> well, well, even back then, you know, having features like, oh, I've got a calendar or a calculator. Like, yeah. You know, you'd show off if you had them on your watch or your PDA. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a bit bragging rights, wasn't it? Like you, know, you never
0: use it. And 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 this is the thing, you know. I can imagine in 1989 when the Game Boy came out, if they could get all three of them onto one cartridge with a battery save pack on it, mm. I could see people would actually have used it back then. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I really do feel, especially if the keyboard had come out as well. You know, I I could imagine it being quite successful. But in 2021, like you say, it's just just to be geeky and nerdy and quirky. <laughs>
1: I do like the fact that they have got these stretch goals as well. I mean, one of them is called their paperweight, but there's another one they're apparently working on um, an e-reader as well. So imagine that's oh, wow. going to let you read like um, e-books on it, you like use it as like a Kindle. Oh my god! Which would that... be pretty cool. Re- so. Read the Bible on a on a Game Boy.
0: Connecting, connecting your Game Boy to Amazon
1: Prime to download your books. <laughs> e- emailing an author. I can't get it to work on my device. Why were you trying to read it on my so. Game Boy? <laughs> You know what, the, the fact that this has been already successfully funded um, and a lot of the comments are kind of like you said, a bit tongue in cheek, like, where well, was this 30 years ago when I was at school? I could have used it. But I think that there is just an appetite for something a little bit different like this and fun, which I think is is really cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, if, if I saw something like this and it was cheap enough, I probably would pick it up just, you know, just just for the fun of using it once, I guess. So we'll keep an eye on that. If you want to back it on Kickstarter, it is available now and I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now this next article, I must admit, Ravi, I thought there was a typo in our show notes here. This is the Zega, not the Sega, the Zega Mame Gear drop-in. What's this? This
2: this is mad. Like I, I spotted this online and uh I, I'd never seen it. It's quite it's quite an old device actually. Um it's been out for a while. But what it is, is it's an exact drop-in. So basically it's a, a main board that's powered by the Raspberry Pi. So you can have a Raspberry Pi 3A uh, Plus or a Pi Zero in there. And uh, you can basically drop the board into uh, Game Gear. And uh, it it, it has a little nice LCD screen on there. It's got the contact pads and everything, so they fully connect with the D-pad. And you use all the plastics that are inside, and you collect your... Raspberry Pi at the end. It's even got the charging thing. It's basically everything you need, but also it's got a full custom recreation of the um, uh, Game Gear shell. So you don't have to use an old Game Gear and rip it apart.
0: That was going to be my next question. Can you put it in a Game Gear or can you buy a shell for it?
2: Yeah, there's a thing called the Retro 6 Reproduction Shell. Okay. Uh, And uh, you can basically get that and they sell the full kit. Uh, for, for, mm. for 250 pounds okay. and uh, that's like the full kit with the rechargeable lithium batteries in so it's going to last a lot longer Um, it's got a speaker in there uh, raspberry pi is included in that uh, 3.2 lcd s- display but also they're working on the zega mega gear 2 as well <laughs> which is which is going to be the improved version which is actually going to have HDMI output as well so you can play it like a switch you know Mm. on on your television as well and you won't be attached
1: to the wall (laughs) like uh, old school style game gears I do like this because I mean the fact that you can drop it into an original game gear shell you know if you've got like a broken one for example lying around I mean I can't imagine many people with game gears are gonna actually butcher them to put something like this in there but if you've got one that's maybe on its last legs like mine you know Needs recapping and everything. I could just, because, I mean, you don't have to get rid of your original Game Gear. You could just take out the internals and put this in and, you know, keep the internals of your Game Gear safe somewhere else, I guess. Um, but it looks like you couldn't tell by looking at this, apart from the fact it's got a much nicer screen, that you've actually done anything to the Game Gear, I guess.
2: Yeah, it could be like that will mods kind of been put in there. But also you have all the Pi options in there. So, you know, you will have Retro Pi. You could probably play the original Game Gear games on ROMs Um, load them in with USB on the the second one. But also, um, you know, you you have them on the SD card on there and you can uh, just fire away, play Atari Lynx on there, you know, uh, Game Boy stuff, um, uh, PlayStation stuff. And anything that works with the Raspberry Pi 3A, I guess, Yeah. yeah.
1: So, you know, you can maim and everything on there as well. They do actually say there's an image available for download with all the software installed and ready to go as well. So by the sounds of it, it's just a case of, you know, drop your ROMs in and uh and play so I do think that's very cool and like you say
0: a lot of game gears do need recapping you know ninety nine percent of the time when I see game gears for sale they are usually faulty like it's just one of those consoles you find just you know seem to have died over the last thirty years so I can see this being quite popular like you say with people you know oh my game gears on its last legs or whatever I just can't seem to fix the screen etc you know whatever is wrong with it you know pop one of these in there you know and the 35 quid as well it looks you know i'm i'm an idiot like when it comes to like soldering and stuff like that but with it being pre-made like this it does look pretty like you know this cable goes here this button goes here pop it together and you you know bob's your uncle off you go kind of thing so it's pretty
1: cool and especially when you look at stuff like you know if you've got your original game gear i know this is emulation Mm. but i mean there's there's a fine line between real hardware and emulation when it comes to stuff like this in my mind because if you wanted your game gear so you want a replacement screen in there you want a new modern battery solution you want to get it recapped you're talking probably you know over 100 150 pounds maybe maybe even more than that um but something like this you're still playing on the original d-pad you're still playing on the original buttons so the experience is not going to be too much different even though you know deep down you know there's an emulator in there i guess the question is, does it go Zagar when it starts <laughs> up? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> if not, then it should. There you go. Have that idea on us. Um, but yeah, that does it very good. I must admit, I'm looking at that thinking, because my Game Gear, yeah, it, I've had it for about probably five years now, and it needs recapping. And I've got a guy who does all my recapping, you know, it of my Amigas and everything. I told him I need a Game Gear doing and He went, oh, really? He was like, I hate doing the Game <laughs> that's Gear? That's when you know He's it's a really hard going, one that? to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, this does look great. Nice little uh, drop-in replacement if you've got a, a Game Gear that's on its last legs. Now, something else that I've been seeing everywhere this week, and I must admit, this is something that we talked about a few months ago, but actually seeing this up and running, videos of this, and now you can actually download it too, this is jaw-dropping. Now, this is a Doom clone that runs on the lowest-end Amiga 500 and is actually a pretty playable first-person shooter.
2: Yeah, the, the the crazy thing is this is like full screen and it runs smoothly, which is absolutely mental because, uh, you know, we've seen the development videos on YouTube. Um, if, if you check them out, there's a, a developer called KK and he's an absolute genius. And also the guys who did that, Remember that Street Fighter demo um, where they talked about the Amiga having Street Fighter and how it could have been done much better? They're involved as well. Pixel Glass, I think that's what they're called. Um, it's just absolutely blooming amazing, this is, because uh, I don't know if you remember, Dan, but most Amiga first-person shooters used to be in a little stamp size, you know, and, and they wouldn't even
1: run fast in that, in that tiny stamp. Yeah, well, I remember, you know, being a kid who had an Amiga, then Doom coming along. And, you know, to run Doom, I'd say comfortably, I wouldn't play Doom on anything less than a 486. Yeah. Really, you know, it's kind of the, 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 I know you can play it on a 386, but not smoothly. Um, But I think, I often see people on Facebook groups and that going, uh, why do you want to play Doom on the Amiga? It was a PC game, and in many ways, it was a game that kind of put the final nail in the Amiga's coffin. But I think there was always a big Doom envy of the Amiga community, which is probably the reason why so many people, you know, try and get games like this running on it. Because I remember there is actually quite a famous email that you can still read if you go on to um, Usenet, and, you you know, there are websites, history websites that have archived it. When a guy who was an Amiga fan emailed John Carmack from um, id Software and said, you know, are you going to port Doom to the Amiga? And he said, even the highest end Amigas couldn't run Doom. It's not possible. So I think it's kind of been a bit of a, you know, for the last 30 years, Amiga fans have just been trying to prove him wrong. Yeah, and uh, this is actually done
2: with Doom Builder. So they've used all the kind of free Doom assets, but they've cleaned them up and they've optimized them graphically for the Amiga as well. Mm. And they're using all the kind of new routines and everything to make it amazingly fast. So it looks very pretty. And, you know, this, this is one of those kind of time machine games that if you went back in the
0: past, you'd Probably sell a lot of systems, you know, and and the name of the game is Dread. Just so our listeners know, because
3: <laughs> nobody <Dread>. said it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry.
2: And um, also, there's an Atari ST version. Yeah. So they've taken the Amiga oh, okay. code and they've they've released an ST version as well. Uh, obviously, which is
1: arguably even more impressive, actually, because the ST didn't have custom chips and stuff. Yeah. Like so it. it's a bit slower,
2: but it's 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 still impressive in its own right. If someone released that for the
0: ST, you know, my, I mean, the first thing I did when I saw this was I've I've been playing loads of Doom recently, like played through Doom one and two, uh, and then I've been playing through the Quake Remaster recently. So obviously, I wanted to see how it ran, and it does. It runs really smooth, you know, from the demos and stuff. From what I'm watching, it looks a little bit muddy. Like I will admit, like you know, when it's playing. But it's pretty. Even though it's muddy, it's it's clear. Do you know what I mean? There's no kind of like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, there's no word. Um, the blurriness, the blurriness layers. Yeah, of it doesn't, doesn't I mean, blur yeah. or anything like that, and it does mm. run really nice. Like I was expecting, you know, the screen to be really jittery, like as you went left to right and stuff like that. But it isn't like that at all. You know, like Ravi said, if there was a time machine or whatever, if they had this back in, you know, '93 or whatever, I think you know, might not have been, Doom might not have been, you know, the final name on the coffin for the Amiga.
2: Well, also like,
0: yeah. you know, um,
2: the, the, the the graphics are designed to also appear on a CRT as well. Mm. So like a lot of people are playing them on emulators and stuff like that and on the YouTube videos. But mm. uh, I've, apparently I've heard on a CRT, it looks absolutely stunning. And you can follow the development on YouTube if you look on uh, KK uh, Altair, um, his channel. Uh, They're kind of going through every asset and they'll show you like, oh, this is the wall and this is what we decided to improve on it. And these are the four versions and this is the enemy animation. And it's amazing seeing development like that kind of clear on YouTube where everybody can see it and kind of watch the
1: progress and get excited. But yeah, I mean, stuff like this is just a complete technical marvel. The fact that, you know, that is running on the original Amiga chipset from 1985, you know, on a machine with like one megabyte that was, you know, in terms of game power, less than the Mega Drive, that's um, yeah, jaw-droppingly impressive. So um, look forward to checking out the full game. If you want to check that out, of course, I'll link that up in our show notes too. Now, so this is some exciting Sega news, um, a game that had a really interesting visual art style back in the day. Um, and I enjoyed this game, Jet Set Radio. Now, yeah. there is some news that the, uh, the guy behind the artwork on that game, that you know, very distinctive, is now back at Sega.
2: Yeah, so this is uh, absolutely fantastic. its uh, I'm going to say this so wrong. Uh, Ryute Ude, Uda. Yeah, I thought,
1: let you, I thought I'd let you pronounce his name. <laughs> you did better uh, than I would have done. <laughs> <laughs> and
2: it, he, he was like the art director for uh, Jet Set Radio Future and Jet Set Radio. And uh, man, like the style. I remember when Jet Set Radio came out, it was like a graffiti game where you could kind of skateboard and go around the world, but it had this animation vibe on it and it was just fantastic. It reminded me a lot of um Prapper the Rapper. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like the 3D stuff and it was all pop culturey and it was like that Japanese kind of really cool vibe, you know?
0: The graphics of Jet Set Radio, you know, I remember seeing it everywhere when it came out on the Dreamcast and stuff. That was like what the future looked like to me. That was like it looked like a full-on animation cartoon. You know, like, the jump from, like, seeing PS1 to suddenly seeing that. Like, don't get me wrong, the Dreamcast had some pretty impressive-looking games. But I remember seeing... I've never played the Jet Set Radio games, uh, to be perfectly honest. But I've seen them, and they do look, like, beautiful. And I think it's down to the art style. I think the art style hides a lot of the graphical limitations if that makes sense
2: it's like breath of the wild kind of has a little bit mm. of that uh, of that kind of vibe but this yeah this like reeked cool so it had like you know the beastie boys were involved with it, a uh, public enemy and you know, mm. it was like i think at one point um there was a big controversy over it because you were going around graffiti and stuff yeah and, and yeah. this was for like you know uh, a, a console and they were like oh is this gotta have a higher rating and stuff like that it was setting this a uh, futuristic Neo-Tokyo place. <laughs> really cool yeah. game.
0: Yeah. Well, he he's not just famous for working on Jet Set Radio. He also was the director of the Yakuza games um, while he was with Sega up to 2012. And I know the Yakuza games have been really big recently and there's a hell of a lot of them for like 360 and Xbox One and, you know, PS3 and PS4. And he's not been with Sega since 2012. Um, but once again, they're very stylistic artsy games you know yeah i don't know if you guys have played them or seen them but you know i've seen them but i've never i've never
2: like gone into the yakuza series
0: yeah but they're really really arty looking games as well so it's cool to have him back um i wonder if you know another jet set radio game is on the horizon or if he's just going to get involved with the yakuza series which is really big at the moment but interestingly the last game he worked on for sega is one of your favorites dan which is a sonic all-stars racing transformed yeah fantastic game yeah and
1: again, that's another game with a really great visual art style. Yeah, it there. really is. Yeah. What I find interesting is that he's been working apparently at Yahoo on mobile titles, and I didn't even know Yahoo did mobile games or anything. I don't yeah. Know who owns
2: Yahoo or if it's yeah. still around? <laughs> what's going
1: on there? I know Yahoo. Yahoo's really
0: big in Japan. So right. Oh yeah, the, the Yahoo auctions, isn't Yahoo there? auctions Something, and stuff yeah. like that. So I imagine you know they've still got Yahoo games on like you know the Japanese app store and stuff like that. So it's cool to see him going back to kind of like where his roots are
1: and get him away from mobile Mm. games. (laughs) (laughs) Ask Jeeves gaming.
0: (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) See, I mean, you know, this could be a good sign that they're doing like, except they did do like a remaster of, um, jet set radio on the, um, PS3. Yeah, I remember probably about a decade ago now. Yeah, um, yeah, and maybe 360. I think it was on as well. So maybe you know, it's it's a sign that they're going to be doing another updated version of it. But I think you know, it's just having these old school Sega developers, especially from that era, th- they all had their own kind of very strong style. I mean, that game always seemed very cyberpunk. Do, do you to remember? Me. I think it was called Space Station
2: Five. Or yeah, I yes. remember that, that, was that game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, shoot, <laughs> shoot, shoot. Shoo. That was the same Michael style, Jackson yeah. in that game. As as a like unlockable character. I'm sure he was. was yeah. yeah. Oh, was he? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I played that probably God about seven, eight years ago, maybe. Yeah, and that again, just a very weird game. And the kind of mm. thing that you probably only see from Sega. Yeah. <laughs> that would ever be like when yeah. you <laughs> Oh you're right. Yeah, actually, yeah, apparently there's um yeah, Michael Jackson had a cameo appearance in the game. You're right. Yeah, you go ahead and Learn something new every day. Because that that was very much it had like a It looked a bit like a 50s kind of art style, didn't Mm. it? But brought into the future, if that makes sense, all the hairdos and stuff that they had. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Weird Sega future. The Jetsons, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it is cool that, you know, bringing back, especially people from that era that had so much creativity, this kind of um, OG Sega artist back to the fold again is very exciting, I think. So look forward to seeing what comes of that. Now, what about this and while we're talking obviously about the uh, the office suite this coming out for the the game boy a bit earlier what about if you haven't got a game boy lying around and you want something on your nintendo entertainment system google maps on the nes is apparently reality now we did talk about this before when it was an april Fool's. i remember so i
0: i made a bit of a snafu earlier on <laughs> ravi to send it sent this over ravi did the news today thank you very much ravi and I was reading this and I started watching it. And yeah, as Dan said, in 2012, Google did this as an April Fool's joke. Google Maps now available on the NES. And I just skimmed over the article and started watching the Google Maps press release one, like, the April 4th. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> like, why is this so? <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, how has he done this? The production of it, even the production value of the YouTube video. And then I was like, wait a second. <laughs> After about three minutes. Um, but yeah, the long story short yeah 2012 they did an April Fool's joke of Google Maps now being available on the NES and it essentially played like Zelda or like um Dragon Quest you know where you kind of like it had like a world map and you put you know what you wanted uh where you wanted to go and then Google Maps would plan your route for you and your little character would actually walk the route on the NES. Um, and it had speech recognition, didn't and it? That's when I realised something was up when they did the speech recognition, because obviously the Famicom controllers um, had speak, you know, the microphones on them. So that's that's when I knew something was amiss, and I was watching the wrong video. Um, but the actual one that's been developed isn't far from it, is it, Ravi?
2: No, this is mad. I'm going to try and work this one out, but it's by a guy called CC Plus Plus who's actually ported uh, Google Maps, the application, uh, to mm. the NES which is absolutely mental. And the way that he's done it is um, he's used a, a, a Raspberry Pi attached to a cartridge. I don't know if this is cheating or if cartridges had this mode. Maybe it's a bit more technical, but um, it's it's called PPU, which is a picture processing unit. And basically the Raspberry Pi attached uh, to the NES acts as a cartridge and uh, the little Raspberry Pi, Um, is the actual ppu graphic accelerator so you do need a little bit of graphics accelerator acceleration and you know that port that came out of doom that came out uh, on the nas that used Mm. this same one with the raspberry pi but um what what this guy's done is absolutely mad like he he splits the whole google maps into a grid of li- little like 8 bit squares, and then basically yeah. chose a texture like a, a Zelda like texture.
0: I, I was going to say, I read it was actually assets from the original Zelda NES game that he's used for the tiles. It does look like it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, so he's actually used Google Maps. Yeah. Replace the tiles with the Zelda ones and then yeah. put it through this unit. And you can like zoom in on cities and it will actually reveal it like Google maps, but um, he's, he says he's going to add some functions in the future as well. So it's going to be like the search function in there. <laughs> so you'll be able to actually search for your town uh, or city and maybe see it live on a, Wow! Well, not
1: live,
0: but uh, you <laughs> yeah. to see is it that, on your net. Is that a
1: little 8-bit version of Ravi waving? <laughs> a little Zelda yeah. running yeah. On around. View, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do think it's awesome, though, because obviously when that kind of um, Google, you know, April Fool's mock-up video they put on there, at the time I looked at that and I thought, well, obviously the, the NES is not internet connected, so they can't exactly put all of Google Maps onto a cartridge. Mm-hmm. But obviously having this, you know, the fact that Raspberry Pi's Pi in there, I imagine connects to Wi-Fi to actual Google Maps yeah. and their APIs and then can pull all this into it. So it's a good way of doing it, actually. And, you know, very creative, I think.
2: Yeah, and he's aiming to fit it all on one cartridge eventually. So it will be on one cartridge and it won't be using this all separate out raspberry pi and a cartridge adapter and all of this kind of stuff and then also have a search by place name as well and clean it up and he's going to open source it as well so hopefully a lot of people will get onto this project
1: this crazy project (laughs) and there'll be a, a, a Google Maps for the NES i have these visions of Ravi and his car getting lost somewhere then uh, opening the boot getting the car battery out big CRT monitor and his NES put the cartridge in you just need to pull out the we? Game Boy port that's what I'm waiting for
0: and then he's going to pull out his Game Boy yeah I was going to say he's going to pull out his Game Boy and use his notepad on his Game Boy
1: to find the address of where he was going there's a YouTube video series Ravi I know you're back on YouTube again yeah, there you go yeah. there's an idea for you <laughs> so again like everything else, like the other story we talked about absolutely pointless But extremely cool. So uh, if you want to check that out, we'll put that and all our stories. We put them in our show notes. You can check them out on your podcast app or just visit our website at theretrohour.com. All the links are in there for you. Now, before we get into our interview this week, talking about some classic moments in gaming, the ultimate history of video games with our guest Steve Kent. Let's give a big thank you to our latest sponsor. And this is a company that I think everyone who's into retro gaming has a lot of respect for and are big fans of. This is our amazing friends at Monster Joysticks, who have been kind enough to support the podcast this week. Now, monsterjoysticks.com, they offer a wide range of quality arcade joysticks and you know all of us guys we've got our background in the arcades we all love going to arcades when we're kids even today you know we go to stuff like arcade club and play expo you can always find us in the arcades there is nothing better than playing classic games on a quality arcade stick
2: oh yeah i
1: absolutely love my
2: monster joystick like it came in kit form and i i put it all together and it was just so good for my amiga cd32 i've used other pads i've used you know, joysticks before and they just don't have the same kind of feel as having those genuine Samoa arcade parts. And uh, also it has a little switch on the back so you can actually change it from up to jump uh, to a button,
1: which is really useful for some Amiga games. Now this is Monster Joysticks, who offer a really wide range of quality arcade joysticks. And they do actually two kind of different skews of these. They do retro gaming joystick kits, like the one you mentioned there, which work with your classic computers, stuff like, you know, the Amiga, the Atari ST, Commodore 64, the Spectrum. They do versions for consoles as well, like the Mega Drive, CD32, and the PC Engine. But also they do these amazing, and I've got one of these, an all-in-one nine-button Raspberry Pi arcade stick. So again, like the one you mentioned then, you can get this in kit form. And I did, I built this myself, put my Raspberry Pi inside it. So actually the Raspberry Pi lives inside the joystick. So, you know, from looking at it, it just looks like a quality nine-button arcade joystick. You turn it around... The Raspberry Pi's in there. You can pop an SD card in, HDMI cable, and you've really got a portable main machine and you're playing these games with an actual quality arcade joystick. Because, I mean, you know, we've all done that before. I mean, you know, you've played the same, Joe. You've downloaded, you know, old school arcade titles and stuff mm. like Xbox Live and that. And trying to play them with a modern pad, it just doesn't feel right at
0: all. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it is really, really nice to play, you know, old school fighting games and beat-em-ups with real hardware just that
1: joystick click mm, yeah there's something about it it yeah. takes takes me back to being like 11 years old in the arcade yeah 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 you've got to actually, have the click to it you have to and one thing i'll say about these i mean they do deluxe kits with the proper sanwa arcade parts in there as well that you know they're made to survive the most extreme usage and joe you've seen me losing at games like, I was literally Mortal about combat, to say. them. <laughs> And mine survived every one of those. And it gives you really high precision as well. They also do more budget-friendly arcade pot options too. And, you know, assembling it is so much fun. You just need a screwdriver, no soldering, anything like that. And you can check them out. And, of course, you'll be supporting the podcast. So have a look at their range of quality arcade joysticks for Raspberry Pi for your Retro Systems. You'll find them at monsterjoysticks.com. And a massive thank you to our friends at Monster Joysticks for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, can we just take a moment to say a huge thank you to our patrons, who are the people, they are the lifeblood of this podcast, the people that allow us to record this show. I mean, you know, we do it at home these days. It's now half past nine at night. We're all here feeling a bit sweaty this evening, but it's cool that we haven't got to, you know, get in our car and travel to a studio that we rent somewhere, or we haven't got to try to, you know, do it where we used to out of hours, you know, five o'clock in the morning so we can get some studio time. And the fact is... With COVID over the last year, the fact is this podcast wouldn't have continued without our patrons support who bought us the equipment that we record on, help us pay for all our hosting, our website costs, that kind of thing. And also just let us bring you these incredible guests each and every week. We can't thank our patrons enough. You know, they're like an amazing community. They've kept they've
2: kept me sane and uh yeah. having like meetings the patron meetups are just absolutely fantastic seeing everyone on the screen and having a good chat but also the after hours podcast which now if you do become a patron you will have a considerable amount of as well because uh the more that we do there's a, a big kind of back catalogue of after hours podcasts and those ones are like kind of backstage of the retro hour you know we just talk about the old school kind of memories that we have uh, some of the old school systems we're going to be talking about the playstation next i'm so excited about the playstation one i think we're all going to have some really big memories of that one
0: yeah the after hours really is kind of like a lot of people messages you know especially when we did our feedback form a couple of weeks ago you know we want to hear more of your guys opinions you know not just on the news art you know segments and stuff like that and the people you interview but about the Mega Drive or the PlayStation, like Ravi says, but that is literally what the After Hours is, you know, and mm. we've been going through kind of like, you know, our life in that year in gaming as well, and we've covered like, what have we covered now, 99 to 2002 so, so far? Yeah, so we've
1: got 2003, 2003 on the one after of the next. PlayStation. We need to yeah. figure out
0: where the cutoff point is, though. You know, (laughs) big
1: debate there. We might start start going backwards then. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. (laughs) It is good, though, because we talk about, you know, not only the news stories that were happening in the world of retro gaming and tech that year. We play some uh, clips from, you know, news reports, read magazine articles out. We look at the games. that We talk about our lives as well, and often it can be slightly embarrassing talking about what we were doing. <laughs> time,
3: well, kinda. Joe
1: was younger, you were older, and I was crazy. So, <laughs> a good mix. Sums it up, I think, yeah. really. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it is always a, a great laugh doing that show. And the thing is, you made a really good point there, Ravi, because some people ask, you know, if I sign up as a patron now, Can I just hear the latest one? I kind of listen back. You actually get access to the entire back catalogue, which is like 15 shows. Yeah, basically
2: you get access to an RSS feed, which um, uh, sounds complex, but you can just add it to your podcast app. And then suddenly you get the ad-free version of the podcast, which also has the extra patron story in it. And you get all of the after hours and they just go boom, boom, boom on your app and load like that. And you can just play them straight away.
1: Yeah, and you normally get the normal podcast a couple of days early. Most weeks we get out on like a Tuesday or Wednesday to patrons. And you also get invited to, all patrons, are welcome to this every month. We love to see you there, our monthly patrons hangout that we do on a Sunday night um, once a month for a couple of hours. It is just a complete nostalgia geek fest, isn't it? It's so much fun.
2: Oh, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, it, it, it does cost me a lot of money, though. But um, I enjoy it, you know, seeing a lot of people's systems and stuff. I'm just like, oh, God, I need to get that. Or they talk about a new adapter (laughs) or a new kind of device. And uh, yeah, also we had, I think last time we had someone who'd found a motherboard at the side of the road. And had cleaned it up and got the system going and then was asking people like what CPU they think it was and stuff. And it was like it started yeah. to turn into like a detective game. It
1: was really interesting. <laughs> it is amazing. It's kind of like a you know a virtual users group, we call it. And actually, now we're into September, and we have got another episode of the after hours coming out in the next week or so, and there'll be another patrons hang out in the next couple of weeks. Dates for that will be all be our patrons. So it's a very good time to join right now, support this podcast, get access to all that incredible stuff, and of course, for being a backer of the Retro Hour podcast you will make your way into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming the Retro Hour Hall of Fame and a massive thank you to our latest patrons Simon Vokins, Ian Griffiths Dave Moore, Anton Johansson and Tim Hugo who all made donations into our Patreon? we massively appreciate your support thank you so much and if you'd like to do the same you'll find it on our website at theretrohour.com Right then, next we're going to be talking to author, writer, journalist Stephen Kent, who's been covering the industry since the early 90s, recently followed up his book that came out 20 years ago, The Ultimate History of Video Games. He's got so many incredible stories. You know, he had the front-seat access to all this stuff while it was happening. He's amazing. And he is our guest next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show where we welcome on a very special guest. And this week we're joined by an author, writer and journalist who's been writing about the video games industry since the early 90s and recently followed up his 2001 book, The Ultimate History of Video Games. So let's welcome on our guest this week, Stephen Ken. Hello, Stephen. How are you?
3: Good. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, very good. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us for um, a little bit of a reminisce, hopefully, and obviously to talk about your new book as well.
3: Thank you for the Uh, invitation.
1: No problem at all. Now, it's always interesting to kind of find out from, my guests where your journey with video games began. I mean, do you remember what initially got you into gaming? Then did you discover it as a kid? What, What kind of happened there?
3: Well, you know, first of all, I was into video games before there were video games. I I loved going to arcades, and even hotels. I remember going to a hotel in Lake Tahoe. It had to have been '68 or '69, and they had the pre-video game video games, the electromechanicals. Like I, I loved the game called Night Bomber, where you would see the sort of spinning. You were flying over a city, and you'd look down, and you'd see. Uh, sort of a spinning world with a city with a city on it spinning slowly, and targets that would light that were sli- slightly lit up. They used a lot of black lights back then. A famous one you might remember is Chicago Mor- Motor Speedway, where you had a little model of a race car in front of a screen with a cartoon of a raceway, and you had to try and dodge the cars on the in the cartoon on that little screen. And I liked those. And then in 1972, when I was um, in middle school, we went as a class to a place called Kalihi, Kalihi Bowling or Kalihi Bowl. It was a bowling alley. And as we were walking there, there was a, of all things, a computer. There was this game and it had a screen and it had two lines and a square on it. And So the teacher sent everyone else to go bowling, and he and I stopped and played Pong. I don't remember who won, but by the time it was over, I was sold for life.
2: And you didn't have to wear those awful shoes as well, as bowling shoes. That's (laughs)
3: true. And you never know what's growing inside those awful shoes.
2: (laughs) Well, I was wondering, were you into writing as a kid, and uh, were there any books that were really influential for you?
3: There were books. I, You know, I'm mildly dyslexic which drives my poor editors crazy. Uh, I I mean, I can be horrific to try and edit, but I'm mildly dyslexic. So reading is a slow process for me. You know, I mean, there are a lot of books that I liked as a kid. More when I got older, I got got very much into the James Bonds for a while. I loved Ian Fleming. Um, Casino Royale, I still consider a seminal novel in my life. It's tough
2: as well, because I'm dyslexic and I write for a magazine as well. So when they they get the proofs and stuff, they're like, oh my God. (laughs) But uh, you've just got to try and get your imagination to kind of flow on the paper.
3: You do. It's a tough thing. And and yeah. I I
2: understand you were kind of a games mag reader. So maybe those were easier for you.
3: Well, remember again, so we're talking 72. The games didn't exist yet. I mean, if you wanted to read about about video games in a magazine back then, maybe a futurist in, in Playboy or, or by 77, um, Omni magazine might have an article a year about it. You know, elect, uh, Arnie Katz and Bill Kunkel and Joyce Worley, uh, really the pi- I consider the pioneers of video game journalism, uh, along with Andy Eddy, at least in the United States, let's be fair about that. Joyce Katz, Kunkel and Worley had electronic games magazine out that that's not to be confused with electronic games monthly egm which came out later and of course outlasted it but it it, uh, catered better better to a younger crowd but Katz, Kunkel, Kunkel, and worley had a lot of impact on me both reading them first before i got to join them and then i was working in a small pr firm i had written my first three articles for the Seattle times or my first two articles for the Seattle times on video games. And Joyce Katz happened to call in to ask about a product we had. We had an interactive Gary Larson, far side calendar we were representing. And she called in to get a copy of that. And I, I pitched her on letting me right for her magazine. And she said, sure. So I got to write a review for them. and, And that was sort of the turning point for me.
1: Well, how did you get that column in the Seattle Times? And
3: oh, that's a fun story. I, I was um, when I graduated from with my bachelor's degree, which is in journalism. It was in the mid '80s when there were two kinds of people in the world: the people who read Stephen King novels when they first came out, and the people who um, waited and let them get ruined by by hearing the people who read them first. And I was just poor enough that I couldn't afford to buy the the books when they came out. We're talking the, the era of It and Misery and Eyes of the Dragon. I couldn't afford them, so I called the Seattle Times and talked to the book editor and convinced him that I knew more about horror than he did and asked if I could do his horror book reviews, which meant that I now got Stephen King books before other people. I got to be the master ruiner of the of the books for everyone in Seattle. And I think I got paid $25 for each book that I read on top of it. That was pretty amazing. That was in 85, 86. Then I went off in 88 to get my master's degree in public relations. And when I came back to Seattle in 93, I called up and asked if I could do a review of virtual haunted houses for Halloween. Mostly because there was a game out called The Seventh Guest. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't afford to buy it again. And also you need a CD-ROM player to play, or a CD-ROM drive in your computer to play it. I didn't have one of those. My computer is pretty old. But my wife let me put a CD-ROM drive in because I um, got them to say, yes, I could write a review of Virtual Haunted Houses. So I reviewed uh, The Seventh Guest, which I liked. I didn't love. It was a great... Um, demonstration of technology, but I also got to review Alone in the Dark on CD-ROM. And Alone in the Dark, that was amazing.
2: That was a great time to kind of be entering it, 1993. You know, it it must have been amazing with that whole kind of CD-ROM coming in there and also kind of switch between 16 to 32-bit generations.
3: Well, yeah. So in, in 93... Uh, the, the SNES was actually still pretty new. Sega had released, I believe, had already released its Sega CD-ROM drive, the Sega CD. Every game that was coming out was, um, they wanted to be, quote-unquote, interactive movies. That was the, the day of interactive movies. And you'd see these these games with awful, awful CD video clips. The resolution was terrible. But I'll be darn, you know, it was, it was video and you got to quasi-control it and everyone thought that was amazing. So there was Mad Dog McCree and just a host of games that, you know, threw, like I say, really bad video clips at you. Uh,
1: I remember the, the acting was terrible in them, but it was just jaw-dropping to see actual video in a game, wasn't it?
3: Absolutely. That's exactly it. Then the acting was <laughs> horrific. Yeah.
1: Well, how many games were you um, receiving and covering then, like on a weekly basis then? You must have oh. been uh, sent loads in the in the mail, I imagine.
3: Yeah. So, you know, when I started out, so I did that, I got three games for Halloween and thought, hey, if, if I get three games for Halloween, I wonder how much I can get for Christmas. And so I got permission to do Christmas, and then I called every game company that I could think of pretty much. As things progressed, I got to a point where I was receiving about fifteen hundred games a, a year in the mail, uh, most of them between the very end of o- August and the and maybe the beginning of October. I, I went for a trip once at that time. My family and I we all went to to <laughs> um, Hawaii, which is where I'm from, in the in the early autumn and. My next door neighbor said he'd gather my all my mail, so he took it all and brought it into his his living room, having no idea how much that would turn out to be. <laughs> um, when we came back, he had a little path through his living room. Never again, I bet you said, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He wasn't. Uh, he never made that offer again. Um, and again, he was a great guy. He never opened a single one of those boxes.
2: So, so what was the kind of average week like for you then? Would you be setting days to playing and testing games and reviewing them and then uh, kind of getting new ones in or, or how, how, how would you kind of go about it?
3: Well, I tried to publish an article a day that averaged out. Cause you know, like there, there were um, games that would take a long time or stories that would take a long time. Then I'd go to E3 or a show in Japan and maybe publish three or four articles in a day. Um, so it, it, it all depended, but, you yeah, know, the average day was probably four to six hours of, of gaming and then two or three hours of writing. And then when I started work on Ultimate History of Video Games Volume 1, which was really, truly ninety four ninety five, I maintained that original schedule. Plus, I added to it as soon as my, my kids went to sleep, I'd write till maybe from 10 to 1 a.m. every night.
2: So you were really kind of living inside the industry. You must have had a great access to figures like Howard Lincoln and Tom Kalinsky.
3: You know, so for when I did the book, Ultimate History of Video Games, the first volume I had, I, it was based on over 500 interviews. Everyone was so generous. The only people who said no. Well, so Ken Kutaragi said no. He 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 avoided me like the plague. Yeah, Yamauchi over at Nintendo. I never got to interview him. It wasn't that I ever said that he ever said no. He never said yes. I never got around to asking to interview him. I suspect the answer would have been no, anyways. He, he, I don't think he spoke English, and I know he didn't have much time for um, the press. And then, uh, the Atari, the Atari guys, Sam Tramiel. Uh, I had interviewed him several times before getting to work on the book. I offended him when he was struggling to keep the Jaguar alive at E3. I think it was 95, with Saturn just launched and PlayStation coming out later that year. Of course, we found out that Nintendo 64 wouldn't come out for another year. I, I was coming outside of the Atari booth. And a, a TV station cornered me and a, and interviewed me and asked uh, what I think what I thought the results would be and I said there'd be blood in the water and they said which systems do you think will go first and I I, I said I thought that the Jaguar would be the first to 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 go and then this then the 3DO and then I had no idea about about Saturn, PlayStation, or N64. I had a lot of belief that N64 would be great. I was always a big Nintendo fan. And I had a lot more faith in Sega back then than I did in Sony. You know, Sony was the new kid on the block. Tramiel, Jack Tramiel, or Sam Tramiel, happened to hear me doing that interview and never really spoke to me much again. I don't blame him a bit, frankly, on that. But the other thing I'll say that was kind of interesting about it was that... um, if you watched there there was a, a TV show that came out called console wars based on on Blake's book of the same name and at the very end of that documentary they have a like two second clip of me actually in that very interview outside the Atari booth saying I didn't they didn't get as far as my prediction that the Jaguar would be first but my prediction that there would be blood in the waters is right there and and in con- the console wars, it was funny to see myself.
1: Well, obviously you were right. I mean, you know, the Jaguar, 3DO, you know, CDI. We had a lot of like failed systems around that point in that oh, kind yeah. of pre-PlayStation but, era.
3: But it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. You know, and it, it, when you're when you're the Tremils struggling to keep Atari alive, you don't want to see somebody pouring gasoline on the fire. Yeah, of course. You know, I mean, I, I, it was only a couple of months later that Jaguar became a late-night infomercial.
1: Or were there any systems that you thought would be popular, but weren't?
3: <laughs> I'm always wrong on these things. <laughs> you know, to this day, I lament um, the failure of GameCube. I think GameCube may be the last real gaming system. It, it didn't play movies. It didn't cater to your grandparents. It, it was a gamer system. I love that controller. I still, you know, people make fun of that controller. I think it was a wonderful controller. I, think, I agree, yeah. I think everything about GameCube was wonderful, I except a lot of the games. I think Mario Sunshine may be the worst Mario adventure game that ever came out. I think um, they, they, Nintendo sort of lost its way during the GameCube era. It's too yeah. bad. Were you kind of uh,
2: having to pick sides with Sega and Nintendo? You know, they were huge rivals and you mentioned console wars there as
3: well. (laughs) You know, I didn't pick sides. I think everyone knew if I had to pick a side, it was Nintendo every time. Nintendo just made games I liked. Um, And so like the first time I I met Tom Kalinske, he said something really nasty about Nintendo. Yeah. I kind of said, I, you know, they're not here. Don't pick on them. And, And he was nice about that. But what's interesting is uh, Richard Bredwick Linder, who at the time was the head of Sega's communications, when I first started covering games and got invited to cover console games for the Seattle Times as well as arcade games, excuse me, as well as computer games, I called Nintendo, said, hey, look, I'm covering video games for the Seattle Times. And they said, great. And the next thing I knew, I had a Game Boy I had an NES and I had a SNES sent to me in the mail, along with a bunch of games. I was like, here, get started. Anything you want, let us know. Uh when I called Sega, they they're like, Well, can you prove that you're actually writing for the Seattle Times? So I sent them some articles. They said, Okay, here's a loner genesis, and here are loner games. We need you to mail them back to us. And then all of a sudden, Genesis or Sega got really generous with me. And what it turned out was Richard Bradford Linder, the head of the whole thing, said, hey, wait, you know, he's in Nintendo's backyard. Wouldn't it be great if we could, like, win him over and, and needle Nintendo in the Seattle Times? And so they went on a charm offensive, and they were pretty charming. But when it came to the games, you know, Nintendo hit us a, a, a low point in, like, 94, 95 They had Metroid, that Metroid game that was fabulous for the um, SNES. But they had a lot of really Me Too, not amazing stuff coming out. And and their third parties weren't doing all that tremendous, you know. I mean, Sega's strategy was, you know, they they created their own sort of studios in the United States. They had 70, 70 Sega games coming out every year. Some were phenomenal. Some were... Good, not many of them were bad, and nintendo's strategy was let's just dig down tight and and hold on till we get our next Miyamoto game
1: Well, I remember when you know the the mega drivers it was known over here came out, and it just felt like a much cooler system than. Nintendo, especially all their advertising and everything as well. But then, obviously after that, I mean, Sega made their fair share of missteps in the mid-90s as well. I mean, I guess you were probably covering that at the time, you know, when when the Saturn came out and we had the 32X and that kind of thing. I mean, did you think there was some missteps that Sega made there and did the Saturn have more potential than was
3: realised? Well, once, you know, they made huge mistakes with Saturn, not just... Some mistakes, but huge errors, colossal errors. First of all, Genesis, they had 19 million Genesis consoles in the United States. They had, a, a, as I recall, a notable lead, not a huge lead, but a notable lead in Europe as well with the Mega Drive. In Japan, they were well far behind. People would buy a Genesis when a new Sonic game would come out, and then they'd just sell it off. Or Mega Drive over there as well. Um, so, you know, they were, they were in second place worldwide. I, they were in third place in Japan. Even TurboGrafx back there, PC Engine was ahead of them. But the other thing is, so they have this advantage, and then out comes Saturn, and they shut down their their Genesis business. They just turned their backs on 19 million users. And, uh, you know, I still remember going to E3 1995. That was in Atlanta. And they stood up and they announced that Saturn was already out. That was in May. Mm -hmm. Remember, Saturn was supposed to come out in September 1995. That was Sega Saturn Saturday, September 2nd, 1995. Well, they they were really big into alliteration over at at Sega. So they, they were supposed to come out in September. Everyone had written articles. I had written dozens of articles saying it's coming out in September. And then it, they announce surprise, it's out already. We've shipped it this morning to uh, Toys R Us and a few other places. And then I had a meeting with Mike Ribeiro, who, who had taken over, pretty kind of taken over at Sega. And I remember looking at him and saying, you kind of make us look stupid when you tell us September 2nd, and all of a sudden you come out in May. And he said, well, if you read our releases carefully and I interrupted him and said, hey, Mike, are you saying that I need to read your releases carefully from now on? Because if I have to read your releases carefully, you know, look for hidden tricks, I may just stop reading them. Yeah. And and his response to that was point taken. You know, he he understood that, you know. But the thing is, they were desperate. They knew they had to have known that. Saturn was really, truly not meant to compete with PlayStation. Sony had infinite pockets you know at that at the launch of PlayStation. Sony was a major corporation with real money, and Sega was hemorrhaging money in Japan, making money in the United States and Europe, but at the same time, you know when again, when you stop to think about it, the original Master System was still alive in South America, particularly in, in Brazil. They had the year, one or two years earlier, launched th- uh, 32X, which was a completely sy- different system that you attached to your Genesis. They had Genesis. They had Pico, which was an amazing product for kids. But, you know, they had two handhelds floating all at the same time. And so, and they had Sega CD. And so, you know, their attention was so split. And then one of the ways they did it was by entirely turning their back on, on, an, on a very active, very excited Genesis market. And when they realized what a mistake that was, they tried to turn their attention back on them. But by that time, a lot of people had moved on.
2: The Seattle Times must have made you really kind of well-known in the industry. And with all this stuff going on, do you do you have any like specific events that you remember or shows that really changed stuff?
3: Well, the Seattle Times helped. Uh, being in com- computer and electronic games helped too. But as it turns out, I got fired from my PR job the month before the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago, which was also the month that that Electronic Games was coming out. And so I, I would hide behind their booth at the Consumer Electronics Show and steal as many copies of the magazine as I could <laughs> um, and then rip out my, my article, my review. And then I had a little homemade business card that was printed on construction paper of all things. And I walked around CES looking for editors and handing them my article from, from Electronic Games along with my little homemade business card, which got me in touch with Lance Elko, who was with a magazine called CD-ROM Today. And next thing I knew, Lance was using me a lot in CD-ROM Today. And then, and I, you know, I found another guy from Computer Life, and they used me a lot there. And, And the LA Times contacted me from the Seattle Times and asked me if I wanted a syndicated column, which, of course, I did. And so I, I just I sort of proliferated. But it was nice because I was the only one in Seattle. Everyone else was in the Bay Area uh, around San Francisco where Sega and, and Sony would eventually start up and Electronic Games was there and LucasArts was there. So I had Nintendo and Microsoft. I won't say to myself, but I had good access to them.
1: Well, obviously, I mean, you know, being well known in the industry and writing for all these respectable publications, um, I know you, you interviewed a lot of gaming legends during your career. Any memorable
3: meetings? Oh, tons and tons and tons of great meetings. I, you know, I met with Shigeru Miyamoto three or four times a year. I met with um, Yuji Naka several times a year. I, Not Karen Kaplan took me to uh, a Chinese restaurant once. Perrin Kaplan was the head of communications for Nintendo America. Wonderful person again. We were in this Chinese restaurant and they had never announced, you know, Game Boy came out in 89. This must have been 94, maybe. And we're eating lunch together and she pulls out a Game Boy Color, which had not even been announced yet, and shows it to me and and says what do you think and of course what could you think i mean here's a game boy and it's playing some of your old games and they're in color now you know the color was very washed out but there was actually color in some of those old games and what was memorable there was that the um the waitress came by and tried to buy it from her oh wow (laughs) that was pretty fun um maybe my most important interview sega knew that i the Charles Belfield and Peter Moore during the Dreamcast era knew that I was rooting for them, that I was very favorable press. They knew that I was also honest press, that I would, as much as I wanted them to, to succeed, I really wanted them to beat to, well, at the time I was kind of angry with Sony, even though I consider looking back, consider the PlayStation 2 to be, one of the two most dominant, best game systems of all time, you know, in their time period. At the time, early on, I I wanted Dreamcast to win. I really did. And so Charles Belfield decided to throw me a bone if I was alert enough. So he called and he, in an interview, he said, you know, Dreamcast sales are down, so we've stopped production and so I asked, when are you going to start production again? And he said, we're not sure. I said, you've discontinued Dreamcast. And that was how they announced that Dreamcast was discontinued.
2: Well, did you notice a big change in the industry when the PlayStation was released?
3: Huge. Enormous. It was a sea change. So what nobody was noticing at the time of the console wars that was that Nintendo had been a system for elementary school kids and and true enthusiasts. And then Genesis came along, and Nintendo didn't see it, but now high schoolers were playing games. Sega effectively turned Nintendo into your little brother's toy. So Nintendo's sitting there wondering... How come nobody's buying? You know, how come Genesis is outselling us? We've got a more power, more powerful hardware. We're doing everything we've we've always done right, but they were playing into Sega's hands when they, you know, <laughs> they had commercials with people dancing around a giant um, SNES, and, and when they didn't um, include the fatalities in Mortal Kombat. they totally played into into Sega's hands. But I think everyone thought, okay, well now high schoolers are playing it, and that stops there. Sony realized that college students would love to play video games if they weren't about plumbers or blue hedgehogs. So now all of a sudden, you know, that was there was a wall there that Sony destroyed, and and the Sony name, you know, when you saw Nintendo, you thought kids' company, when you saw Sega there was a cool factor to sega but it was still not not everyone wanted there was nothing cool about sitting around playing video games yet and sony brought that cool sony absolutely brought that cool because sony wasn't the toy company sony was an electronics company does that answer your question
1: yeah absolutely and that's kind of my memory of it as well i think you're right you know it was like i remember you know a lot of like 18, 19 year nineteen-year-olds, like the older teenagers, getting into PlayStation. They're, they're going out to bars and then coming back and playing PlayStation after parties till you know five o'clock in the morning and, and
2: drinking. And, and, and that the kind history of, thing. of Sony just being cool with like the Walkman yeah. and the Discman and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah.
3: Jim Wims did something. Told me something that he was, you know, a very one of those very short-lived heads of Sony of Sony Computer Entertainment America. You know, where they went through. Uh, Steve Race, and then Jim Wim. Of course, Bernie Stoller was there as well. And then Mm -hmm. in came um, they got rid of all of them, and then came Kaz Hirai. And he he would, of course, remain there for a long time and, and eventually become the head of all Sony. But one thing that Jim Wim told me that was really brilliant was they brought in focus groups where they knew they had an even number of SNES owners and Genesis owners, Mega Drive owners, just to or for your audience and what they found was the SNES owners really were happier but they were embarrassed that they were SNES owners to the point where some of them would deny that they had a SNES even though the people doing the interview knew they had one they'd say okay you know you have a Super Nintendo don't you and they're no no not me not me I, I don't know one of those and the Genesis owners were not as happy with their consoles and their games as the SNES owners, but they were not embarrassed of their ownership. And and so Sony looked at that and said, how do we get the best of both worlds? And they really did it. Yeah, I mean, the early days of, of PlayStation, they worked so hard to, to support third parties and to um, make it cool but also make it fun.
1: Well, I know that Nintendo obviously tried to kind of realign their image with that. And obviously when the N64 or the Ultra 64 as it was originally called in the in the press we were hearing loads of stories about how that was going to be you know next level gaming it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before and obviously it was delayed quite a bit i mean i guess obviously you were covering all this kind of stuff the hype leading up to the the n64 what did you kind of think of it
3: well then? you know they did nintendo did a little underhanded stuff around then too when um oh cruising usa came out they sort of hinted it was running on an ultra 64 Yeah, you know, the arcade game and it most certainly was not I really liked Minoru Arakawa. I really liked Howard Lincoln. And they would show me stuff, and what they would show me was pretty good. But, you know, N64, it, it had so few polygons and relied so much on, on texturing. John Carmack made a statement. He said it not just to me, he said it to lots and lots and lots of people. And it was a brilliant statement that with gaming um, that people were always looking for elegant solutions, but in the end it was just raw power that, that won every time, you know, so the elegant solution was all, all kinds of different smarter pixels or this or that. But in the end, you know, two years later, a new processor would come out, a new GPU, a new graphics card. And, all those smart pixels just look prehistoric next to what you could do now that you had more, more polygons. Sony really capitalized on that. I, I thought that, to me, the majority of N64 games, not all N64 games, but a lot of them looked like they were inflated. You know, like the, like the characters in them were inflated, blown up, blown, you know, inflated toys. And they didn't look that way on, on PlayStation
1: well, you wrote for some obviously huge gaming magazines that you've already mentioned, like, you know, Electronic Games, Next Gen as well. How did these magazines kind of handle the, the rise of the internet in the mid-90s? Because obviously that was a big changing point.
3: Yeah, it was. You know, Next Gen was, it was a privilege writing for Next Gen. Uh, I don't know if he'll, he'll ever hear this. My editor there was a guy named Neil West, who was about the most charming guy you could ever meet and smart. And just cool. He would do things that were pretty hilarious sometimes too. He was, his assistant, his number two guy was Chris Charles, now at at Microsoft and doing big things. And Next Gen was always on the, more than anyone else. A lot of the magazines covered what was going on. But Next Gen with Neil and Chris and, and Tom Russo and the other guys, really had a nose for what was coming, more so than I did. I think I've told this story a dozen times. It's always embarrassing, and I'll tell it again, Uh, just because we Americans love to humiliate ourselves, I guess. With Apple computers, this tells you what a great prophet of the future I am. When they announced iMac, I said it was going to fail because it didn't have a disk drive. And, you know, how do you get stuff into your computer without a disk drive? And so I thought iMac was going to fail. And then they announced iPod. And I said, We've already seen Nomad and Bandit. The world has already looked at MP3 players. We're not interested. And then they talked about iPhone. And I, and I said, You know, there are no buttons on this thing. Why? No one wants a phone without any buttons. And then they said I, iPad. And I looked in and said, It's just a big iPod. Who wants that? I was wrong every single time. And th- this isn't a little wrong. This is, that's a lot wrong. So. A lot of people thought that though, didn't they? You, you weren't alone. Yeah. Most of them were bright enough not to put it in USA Today or on MSNBC. <laughs> um, did
2: you uh, attend any launches then? And were they also like any systems that came out and they hadn't really got going yet? And then And then once they did, you'd kind of change your opinion on them.
3: I went to a f- quite a few launches, including you know I was at the the biggest launch in history. I was at, which is the Japanese launch of the of the PlayStation Two. I was there at every step. I when they had their glimpse of the future event in Japan, where in that huge opera house, um, in the convention center, I was there. You know, I mean, when I'm talking about that, when I talk about that in the book some of its memory and some of its talking to other people who were there to get their quotes but i was there in that in that auditorium watching you know ken Kutaragi show things that absolutely blew everyone's mind and then i got to return and then i returned to japan on my own dime to cover the actual launch you know that was the biggest launch in history i mean the the launch of the playstation 2 in japan was i mean that was, they had they held it on a Saturday because, you know, they didn't want the whole city bogged down traffic-wise and would turn all of Tokyo into a traffic jam. And, and it was early in the morning, and it was so interesting because late the night before, there were huge lines in front of every major store in Akihabara, and... If, if, the, if a store was known to have some that hadn't been pre-purchased, th- then there were thousands of people in front of them. And, and none of those stores had more than a couple hundred of uh, consoles to give out. I, I was one who had not bought one in advance and I got in one of those lines and this guy came out and he saw me and said, you're American. And I said, yeah. And he said, like, you know, when did you pre-purchase? And I told him I hadn't. And he came back. And he said, do not leave your space in line. And so, you know, I thought, okay, that's really nice of you. Uh, But I left my space in line because it was getting to three or four in the morning and I was tired and I I knew I wasn't, by that time I knew I wasn't going to get a system. So I left my place in line and I went back to the hotel and I slept for a couple hours and I came back an hour before the launch and the guy came back out and said, I told you not to leave your space in line. I said, well, I'm not going to get one. And he handed me a ticket for one. I still had to pay for it, but I was able to get a console. Um, You know, a a kid committed suicide that day. He climbed to the top of one of the stores that that was selling them and jumped off three floors. People were mugged going home with their PlayStation 2s. That was a huge event. It was, I, I, I got stopped. I think maybe the, the guy from um, the, the news service didn't speak um, English or didn't speak Japanese, so he stopped me and, and said, what do you think of the launch of the PlayStation 2? And I told him that in gaming um, history, this is the launch of the Steam engine. Next thing I knew, when I came home, people were calling up and saying, "Hey, you're in, in Newsweek magazine." And you know, my response was, "Well, I didn't see n Guy there. n Guy Kroll was the guy who covered their their video games, but they had a little section in the front of the magazine where they ran quotes, and there was that quote.
1: It really was a phenomenon. That system, absolutely. You
3: know, it, it's impossible to to un- overestimate or overexpress how. The the PlayStation Two and the NES. Just what power those, those launches had. And it wasn't just power, it's that you'd go to the mall every weekend and you'd see something new and not unexpected on this on the Nintendo Entertainment System or the or the PlayStation Two. You had no idea it was coming, and it was great, just the same. Well,
1: in two thousand one you released what is often said to be you know, the best book covering the creation and rise of the industry at that time. That was the ultimate history of video games. So you mentioned that you started writing that. I mean, several years before. Where did the idea come from, and how did you start writing that book?
3: Well, the idea came from that one. I was very full of myself because people everywhere. I, I you know people my my magazines my articles were appearing everywhere places where I didn't even deserve to be, and I was. Really, truly, I'd become very arrogant. I mean, around that time, while I was working on the book, even here we go humiliating myself again. There was a point where I needed some art for a big for a big article, and Eileen Tanner, the who was not who was a worked for the PR firm that worked for Nintendo, was in charge of helping me out with the art, and she didn't get it to me on time. I really gave her hell over it. I mean, I was off the rails. I was wrong. I I really blew up. And I got a call a few minutes later that day from Perrin Kaplan, who, again, the head of communications for Nintendo. And Perrin said, you know, we don't send product. And she listed a couple of very big national journalists, people who were in the mainstream much bigger than me, including the guy who, um, Gene Shalit, who was the NBC uh, Today show. Tech reviewer and movie reviewer. She said, we don't send product to him um, because he was, he was rude to our PR person. And he's a lot bigger than you. That put me in my place. I needed that. Um, anyways, but I thought I didn't know that the book Phoenix, The Fallen Rise of Games, was out yet. I still would have written the book even if I had known that Phoenix was out, because Phoenix was more like an encyclopedia. It wasn't especially readable, it was just packed with good information. Um, mine was more of a narrative than than Lenny Herman's, than Phoenix. But I, around ninety three, ninety four, I realized I'd been there. I'd you know I didn't get a Pong. I got a, a Telstar instead. But I'd been there watching the games evolve and playing as everything I could get my hands on from the very beginning. And I thought. When I'd propose articles about history, my editors at, at NextGen and uh, Electronic Games and MSNBC liked my doing historical articles. So I thought, why not do a, a book? And it, it actually helped my career as well as putting together the book because I'd find these people and I'd publish the articles. I'd make some money, which fed my family, and, and I'd get the inf- gather information for my books. And I got a reputation for knowing game history all at the same time. Well, it's interesting
2: that you didn't just start on Pong as well. You went back to, like, the pinball industry. Um, uh, was it important to have that context?
3: Well, I went all the way back to Abraham Lincoln.
2: Oh, yeah.
3: You <laughs> know, because Lincoln played Bagatelle, and Bagatelle morphed, or at least in theory, Lincoln played Bagatelle, and that morphed into pinball, which which created – the mechanisms through which arcade games were sold and the and many of the companies that made the big arcade games and you know i mean if if you were going to do a history of mankind where do you start you know um and by the way i always bring this up but i want to bring it up again the, naming that book the ultimate history of video games was not my idea i this was coming out in you know in the 90s video games had been around for 25 years so I wanted to call it the first quarter a uh, nice little double entendre playing on quarters and arcade games which were still around at that time and big and 25 years of video games the full name was the first quarter of 25 year history of video games but when Prima bought it from me the editor uh, who took over and later edited it for Crown Book said, "Look, we can't call it the first quarter. People won't, won't know whether it's about basketball, coin collecting, or f- financials." Uh, and they, they they said they suggested Ultimate History of Video Games. I said, "Absolutely not, because once you call something Ultimate, you beg people to prove that it's not Ultimate and that there's something more Ultimate." And I wasn't that confident. I, I didn't want people doing that. Uh, but they went with Ultimate History of Video Games. And I think overall it was a good choice on there.
1: I know the book is very well received and you did a lot of interviews for it as well. I mean, how many interviews did you do and kind of w- which were your favourite interviews in the book?
3: I did over 500 interviews. You know, Nolan Bushnell was always a treat to interview. Al Alcorn was hilarious. Um, Al actually was kind enough to take me on a tour of the important sites of the creation of video games in the San Jose area. I loved interviewing Miyamoto because and Dave Toyer, the creator of Tempest. You know, the man changed my life. Tempest was, was and probably is still my favorite arcade game, not my favorite arcade game to own because I really stink at it, but it was such a great game. And, you know, it was my favorite arcade game to spend $40 on per night type of thing. And never last more than a minute or two per per quarter. It was such a great game. Did you guys play Tempest ever?
1: Yeah, and I'm exactly the same. I love it, but yeah, I'm terrible at it. Um, I love the version on the Atari Jaguar, actually. You know, the the Jeff Minter one Tempest 2000. That's fantastic. Brilliant as
3: well. work. Brilliant work. I only gave it a C, uh, which I regret to this day. The reason I only gave it a C was because Atari had promised to support it with a wheel controller. And they'd never released the wheel controller. So I gave it a C in protest. But Jeff Minter deserved an A plus because he created the best game that ever came out on the Jaguar.
1: I think you're right that you need a rotary controller to play that game, really, don't you? You do.
3: You do. It's not Tempest Without.
1: I mean, the book was 590 pages. I mean, that was it was a big book. Was that the intention or did it just kind of keep growing?
3: Well, yeah, I thought I, I, thought I was going to publish it in 96. I started looking for publishers in 96. So I thought it would end with the launch of the N64, but you know the belief at the time was that nobody cares about video games and that video game players don't read books. Uh, I sent it to a bunch of publishers that turned me down and, and then released other books. One of them, Little Brown, turned me down and released another book very, very quickly thereafter. I, To this day, I, I think they got the idea from my proposal. I could be wrong, but... Those books were fine. They were okay. I'm not putting those books down. Um, but nobody wanted a book on video games when I when I first started. Prima turned me down as well. They were doing strategy guides. So they certainly knew about games, books for gamers. And then I, my dad talked me into self-publishing on Amazon. And that was a great idea and a terrible idea. It was a great idea because I made 5000 and for a brief week or two was the fastest-selling self-published book in the history of Amazon. I sold my 5,000 out really quickly. It was a terrible idea because, as we discussed earlier, I'm dyslexic, and I think, Ravi, you and I can agree that dyslexics should not edit their own books.
2: (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah, I I can imagine putting something out and then having to get it redone over and over again,
3: yeah. And you can't with a book, can you? And, and if you look at the reviews, everybody, even the most generous people, the people who really want to like the book, say it's a great book but made hard to read by all the gram- grammatical mistakes and a couple of historical mistakes too, actually a number of them. One of my problems is that I really, really like oral history. And the way people remember things isn't always the way they happened. I interviewed... Al Alcorn and Steve Wozniak in, in that book, and then Walter Isaacson, a decade later, interviewed them for a book he was writing, and they tell some of the same stories I told. Only they're all, they're quite a bit different in their in his book. And it isn't because they lied to me. Maybe people read what they what they had said in my book and pointed out what he what they did wrong, or maybe I got it right in my book, and they forgot things. But one way or another, the stories in the Isaacson book are different than my book. But yeah, I, so, I think
2: we get that with podcast guests as well. We always get a different angle or a different a different view of uh, of what happened, you know, from each person's personal perspective.
3: Well, especially with sixty year old p- podcast guests like myself, I'm afraid. <laughs> but yeah, you know, one of the examples I can give that that is where um, Toru tani was. Iwatani was talking to me about making Pac Man and he talked about how they couldn't decide what Pac Man should look like, and then they went to a pizza parlor and somebody had taken the first piece of pizza and when he reached down to take the second, there was Pac Man staring at him. And that sounds great, except I found an, an article from the time that Pac Man came out in which he said, I wish I could say that this is how it happened. You know, so over the story time, changed every time, yeah you know, that had morphed.
1: Well, the first book ended just as the Xbox and GameCube were released. Obviously now, 20 years later, you've released The Ultimate History of Video Games Volume 2. So why was now the right time to do the (laughs) follow-up?
3: Mostly because people were saying, this isn't the ultimate history of video games. This is the ultimately outdated history of video games. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the thing that's really interesting with this book is, you would think that, you know, I covered 150 years of history. I covered from Abraham Lincoln to GameCube in that first book. So 600 pages, 150 pages of history. I, at first I thought, we'll just add a couple of chapters to the original book and update it. And then as we as we looked at the project, we realized you couldn't do that because, one, it's 600 pages long. If we add another 100 or 200 pages, it's 700 pages long. And seven hundred page books tend to fall apart. And secondly, you know, a lot had happened. So we thought, okay, we'll cover the twenty years in six hundred pages. And then I I just covered basically from the PlayStation three Wii era. Oh excuse me, the PlayStation Two era, the PlayStation Two GameCube era, and that took three hundred pages. And we realized that we're not even going to get to the present. All this book covers is PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, Xbox, Xbox 360, GameCube, and Wii with DS and, and PSP thrown in and a few things like that. But it, it stops in 2012. Well, The intention is to release another book in 2026 that will cover PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, etc. at et et all and catch us up finally. Tell us a bit about, I mean, obviously you said it goes up to 2012. So
1: who features in this book then? And kind of tell us a bit. Well,
3: about you it? know, it goes into 2012, except what I would do is, like I said, there's a rhythm. And the rhythm was, I would talk about an era, a, gen- a generation of our, of home console. And then I'd have two or three chapters about things that sort of occurred in that era. And if they went on in history, I tried to cover them a bit. So for instance, I have... Uh, the first chapters, there's a chapter about PlayStation 2 really taking over. And then a chapter about the demise of Dreamcast called, uh, about, about Sega, A Cautionary Tale, I believe is the, cover, is the title. And then more chapters about just how they competed with each other. And then it goes into the afterlife of arcade games and, and a few other issues from the time. And then the next section, you know, I I start with the launches of the new consoles. The last two chapters actually almost keep up, get up to the present. The last two chapters of the book are about really the rivalry between Activision and and Electronic Arts for the competing to be the largest company in games. And a lot of the Mm. dumb things they've done at both companies. And then the final chapter is about the very dysfunctional relationship between Hollywood and Silicon Valley and how games based on movies are bad generally bad and movies based on games are generally worse well obviously Steve I mean
1: you've been front row checking out all this stuff you know for the last 30 years so I think you know you're absolutely the perfect person to write these books and obviously they are available now and um, volume one and volume 2 on Amazon which I'll, I'll link up in our show notes. Everyone should go and check them out and buy them. Um, just one final question. I mean, obviously, having such a, a long history in video games, what do you think was the most exciting time in gaming, in your opinion?
3: Well, first of all, I want to thank you for having me on. You, you guys have been wonderful, gracious hosts, and I appreciate that. But but also, just you guys, thank you for having me on. I want to make sure that you, that you and your audience know I'm very grateful. You know, did, did you guys ever have Mad Magazine in... Uh, we, we didn't have no. MAD. We
2: had like British equivalents, but um, we do know a lot about MAD because there's uh, a kind of big connection with uh, video games and like, you know, Spy vs. Spy and stuff like that.
3: Absolutely. Spy vs. Spy was a, a MAD, very much a, a MAD thing, you know, a MAD magazine. So my point being that um, if you ask people back when MAD was around, when was the heyday, they generally told you it was at the time that they were in junior high school. And if you ask people, when was the heyday of Saturday Night Live? Usually they'll tell you it's about the time that they were in college. You know, the, the, some people think it was the Eddie Murphy period, which I kind of agree with. Uh, and lo and behold, that's when I was in college. Some people think it's now. And most of those people are, are younger and just out of college. And And I think... I think that there's a lot of that with video games too, that there's a period where things are new to you and exciting and you don't, you don't see that they were done only not quite as well in earlier generations. For me, it's like a time machine. If I, I, if I could go back into an, into an old arcade and play she's got Betty Davis eyes or, or, Video killed the radio star. You know, if I hear those playing in the background and being in a dark arcade where the only light around is the logo glow coming from the screens, just the thought of it gets my 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 pulse pumping. So for me, if I had to say the most exciting time, it was the arcade revolution of 81, 82. But really, I didn't notice when the arcade business went went down. You know, eighty-two, eighty-three, was a great time to be a gamer. It's just you couldn't. Some of the big arcades were disappearing. That was that was my time.
1: That sounds incredible, Steve. And obviously, I mean, it's an industry that's constantly changing. And if people want to check out, you know, the, the last. 40 years and and beyond of where gaming's come from um, absolutely check out The Ultimate History of Video Games Volume 1 and 2 like I mentioned I'll put that in our show notes Steve it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for coming on and sharing some of your stories with
3: us thank you for having me on